Hello and welcome to episode number 16 of Earth Repair Radio. You need to know what you're doing. You need to know who you're working with. Don't come and start planting trees thinking you're doing a great thing when that can get someone killed. Because a tree can be a threatening thing when you don't want people in your community and they start coming and looking like they're gonna hang out for a while. From the physical design to the economic design, how do we create livelihoods? Can we take the raw, you know, the waste product, the output of one livelihoods activity or one industrial activity and use that as an input for another? Even at the house, (laughs) even in containers, even up the walls, even over the top, over the canopies, between structures, between shelters, food can be grown. And we are starting to demonstrate that. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Millison, and today we have a really special guest. We have Natalie Topa. Natalie has been based in East Africa for the last 13 years and works as the Regional Resilience and Livelihoods Coordinator for the Danish Refugee Council, where she covers the whole region, including Yemen, Somalia, Djibouti, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, Congo, and Burundi. Natalie moved to South Sudan after the signing of the 2005 peace agreement to work on post-war-torn town planning and reconstruction. Natalie's traveled to 60 countries, connecting with cultural and religious contexts and livelihood strategies, and her work with displaced populations involves community reconstruction, agriculture, health and school facilities, water provisions, and civic engagement. And she's super into permaculture. So... Without further ado, let's hear the interview with Natalie Topa. Thank you so much um, for agreeing to talk to me. Uh, it's interesting. I had a, a student who um, was a former USAID worker, and he had been in Afghanistan um, after uh, when the war started and such, working with the refugees. And he said, um, if I had known about permaculture when I was working in USAID, I would have had a completely different perspective, maybe change the face of that organization. So I'm really interested to talk to you. So tell me about your work, uh, your current work in refugee camps. You know, who do you work for and what's your job description? Um, okay, I'm going to come back to the USAID thing in a minute because there are a few things I want to clarify uh, for people who know nothing about humanitarian work and development. Uh, my name is Natalie Topa. So my current role is with the Danish Refugee Council, which is a global organization. Um, and my role is Regional Resilience and Livelihoods Coordinator for East Africa and Yemen. And what that means is that I am the senior technical advisor to all of our teams in 10 countries on how to build resilience of people who are displaced. Um, not all people who are displaced are refugees. Uh, you know, if you are internal to a country, but you have to move within your country, you are called internally displaced or an IDP. Uh, <clears throat> so people move for a lot of different reasons. Um, and we refer to that globally as mixed migration. People move for economic reasons. People move for uh, reasons of conflict and war. Um, people move for reasons of famine. And famine can be conflict-induced. It can be drought-induced. So people are moving all over the place all of the time. Uh, and and there's a lot of misconceptions about that. So I just want to take one second to clear up um, something. You know, we talk. I, I see a lot of people get their 
P, you know, do their PDCs and they're so excited to rush out to some developing country and work with uh, what they call refugees and they're not really sure what that means. So just really quickly, you mentioned USAID. USAID is not an NGO. It is part of the U.S. State Department. It is the U.S. government. Um, it stands for United States Agency for International Development. And that's also broken down into branches. Within develop, you know, development work, you have humanitarian work, which is humanitarian aid, emergency relief, uh, all those things that we uh, refer to as you know, sort of the humanitarian realm. Then you have recovery and development, and that can be working with governments, federal governments, institutions, very large-scale market actors, uh, and it, it's you know there are a lot of reasons why different organizations and donors are involved in those. But I really want to clear that up because I hear a lot of permaculture trainers um, really confuse the whole spectrum. It is a very big spectrum with a lot of different types of assistance to context, to people, to institutions, to markets. And so, you know, when we're talking about refugees, we're kind of talking about that humanitarian and into early recovery and recovery. So I just want to make that a bit more clear to people. Did you come into this work knowing that you would be utilizing permaculture? I think I intuited it, um, but it, it, uh, it wasn't part of my narrative at that time. You know, just a little bit about me. I grew up in a low-income immigrant family held, you know, led by a single mother in the U.S. Uh, she, was a, she is an immigrant from Poland, and so I'm first-generation American. Both of my fathers were actually refugees themselves. And the reason I say both of my fathers is because I had my biological father was Ukrainian who uh, received a, U a refugee voucher with his whole family to grow up in Brazil. And the person who raised me like a father um, was registered with UNHCR in Germany uh, during the Second World War. And so um, that sort of being an immigrant in the U.S. and being brought up by a single mother helped me to sort of understand, you know, a different perspective on the way that the world around me works. And what I started to realize is that I wanted to go into urban planning because I think that the human built environment should be built for people like my mother. She should have access to dignified economic opportunity, safe, reliable, uh, and convenient public transportation, um, safety and security and crime prevention through environmental design. And so when I started to realize that the built environment completely has an impact on the human experience, I went into urban and regional planning. And I did know about permaculture in my, um, in high school, uh, sorry, in college, which was 1998, almost yeah, 20 years ago. And that foundation of starting to understand systems is definitely something that I carried with me. I started to work in transit-oriented development, and transit-oriented development is trying to understand how do we leverage publicly held lands with creative real estate developments around fixed rail transit so we can be doing transit villages that um, address food deserts, that address a lot of different aspects of quality of life that are livable and walkable. When I moved to, uh, I moved to, South, uh, to East Africa in 2005 to work in um, South Sudan after the peace agreement was signed on post-war town planning and reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so my lens was always about systems thinking and how do we do placemaking to improve the human experience. Mm 
So I did have a foundation of that type of thinking, but it was only when I started to work on one particular program where we were working in a very um, drought-ridden context with very vulnerable villages that were very vulnerable to climate shocks and stresses. And not only um, drought. I'm talking about northeastern Uganda and northeastern Kenya on the Somalia border. You know, everyone talks about drought in those regions, but the climate shocks and stresses are actually drought, increased aridity, flash floods. But as the ecology is degraded, we also have massive wind gusts that used to be dust devils. Now they're small tornadoes that rip people's roofs off of their huts and destroy assets um, and even fires. You know, in much of this region, people still practice slashing and burning to, you know, for you know, their own practice of fire ecology. uh, And based on their observation, they think that that regenerates the rangeland. Um, But the environment is so degraded by overgrazing of livestock, of uh, charcoal from, you know, chopping down of trees for domestic fuels. And so that was really when I stepped away to go get technical training and do permaculture design courses, even though I had studied it informally for long. Um, But there was a crossroads between my role as the director in a program where I was being encouraged to follow a model of connecting farmers with market inputs for agricultural chemicals, non-renewable seeds. (laughs) And so that was really when I stepped away and say, no, my ethic doesn't allow me to do this. And I need to, I want to become the technical expert so that I can not only direct and manage the ins and outs of a program and a budget and all that, but really be training and guiding the technical elements and food production and the, you know, the, what we call permaculture okay. uh, aspects of it. Yeah. And now what is the receptivity within the different organizations that you are in contact with um, when you bring up permaculture? Or do you bring it up as that word or you're just really talking about the actual uh, technical details of the implementation of systems? So... Um, we talk about resilience and that is a big buzzword, but there is actually a lot of amazing work and thinking and modeling going into resilience building the program. I was running a large program in Kenya and Uganda funded by the British government, and it was building resilience and adaptation to climate extremes and disasters. And it was a systems based approach. And I think that that was a permaculture approach. We had a whole theory of change connecting many different elements. Um, It was a very three-dimensional program. So in resilience, when I talk about resilience, I'm talking about good governance, you know, the participation of of women and vulnerable people and people with specific needs into decision-making processes. I'm talking about gender equity. I'm talking about market systems development, financial inclusion, um, natural resources management, renewable energy, uh, water for resilience. So when when you have all of those things, including social capital also. Social capital is the number one greatest factor in resilience. You know, if your house is on fire at four o'clock in the morning, you're not going to run out and start mulching your garden or applying for a job at at McDonald's, right? No, you're going to start screaming, help, help me. You need to connect. You need to unify with people and you need that immediate support. And that is what happens with all of us. It doesn't matter if you're a CEO of a top company you know, um, you, you need that human connection in order to get to the next level, to have the confidence, to have the aspiration um, to move to the next level. So 
when we're talking about those systems, that is permaculture because permaculture is not just about food production and gardening. You're there's social permaculture, emotional, cultural, and bioregional, economic, right? It's all about symbiosis. So whether you're talking about industrial symbiosis or social symbiosis, um, you know, we there is increasingly in in the development realm uh, a greater focus on having systems-based approaches to uh, you know, to recovery and resilience after a disaster. Mm-hmm. Now, permaculture is speaks that same language, you know, and permaculture is increasingly um, coming into that space as a term. Um, you know, people, there's still some confusion about, well, that's conservation agriculture or that's just agroecology, but that ignores ethics. Um, and so when we're, when we're looking at systems, when we're looking at a community from all of these different angles, economically, financially, socially, and food production, ecology, that is what I would, that's what I, my hope is for permaculture in this sector or in this system of displacement. Definitely there's receptivity. I think, you know, there's, we've been doing this for a long time. We've had refugees, look at every refugee organization that was established, established since World War II. You know, everyone is looking for something new and innovative and more, of uh, regenerative, you know, I, I don't like the term sustainable, but, you know, people are looking for solutions. Um, so I think that when people start to hear about this approach, they're like, well, can you tell, me, tell us more about that? How would we apply that? There is definitely receptivity. So paint us a picture of what it's like in some of the camps for displaced peoples that you're working in. You know, what are these people's struggles and challenges on a day-to-day basis um, are they expecting to be there for a long duration or are they expecting this to be a temporary situation? You know, what's, what's it look like out there in the field? Okay. So it really runs the gamut. There's a huge spectrum. Um, two weeks ago I was in South Sudan in a town called Malakal where I've been working since 2005 and, uh, it's completely destroyed now because of conflict. Um, and there we have what's called the Protection of Civilians Camp, or POC. And that, you know, the, what happened there was that there was an, uh, an event of, conf- you know, a, a conflict event of violence and brutality. People overnight rushed, you know, the nearby villages rushed into the local UN compound. There's too many to fit in there. You know, the UN is trying very hard to meet the needs and and work with NGOs to try to create a place for them, but it cannot be a permanent thing. Uh, the resources are not going to be there to support them for long. Their shelters are made of, you know, local timbers and plastic sheets. It's extremely hot. I mean, I don't know how what the temperatures were, but it was definitely approaching, you know, probably over 115, 120 degrees. I'm not joking. It was so scary. Um, so that's that's one extreme uh, in Kakuma in, in northern Kenya. And so that's a temporary situation. People have been there for two years, but it's it's viewed as a very temporary situation. And by the way, you know, I know that I think that people have a lot of preconceived notions about agencies that work with refugees and how you know what their motives are. Um, but you have to be very careful. There's a very, you know, delicate balance when you're dealing with displaced populations that, you know, the, the, when the ideal is for them to be returning, they can't live inside this walled compound (laughs) in a military base forever. So they need to go and be reestablishing themselves 
as quickly as possible and rebuild their community, given, you know, obviously when it's safe to do so. You're not trying to push people into a situation of violence. But it has subsided, and when the time is right, they really need to go and and build back their community. Uh, and so the more that you invest in that community, the more you plant permanent structures, including trees, you're starting to get to a situation that it's becoming a little city and you've got high schools and schools and mosques and churches and it's a community, so why leave? And so it's really a delicate balance as to how much investment can you put into long-term things like schools that will preclude people from uh, returning back to a situation where they can really um, rebuild their communities on their terms and not be dependent on aid, which is so fickle. And I mean, it's really like, you know, a lot of the emergency programs get funding for three, six, nine months. It's just, you know, there's no long-term plan and there shouldn't be. I mean, it globally, we, we don't want long-term displacement of, of all of us and in temporary situations. So, um, so that's one example. Another example, like in Kakuma in North East, uh, in Northern Kenya, it's like a town. Um, there's a gridded street pattern. There's large blocks. People have small plots. Uh, they have their local shelter made of local materials, cob, adobe brick, sun-dried bricks, tin roofs, um, I mean, iron sheets. Um, they have some little compound walls. They have little space to do some, you know, maybe compound wall is made just of local timbers um, and some vegetation. And so they're trying to do a little bit of food production. But there's such a you know, there's this notion that food production happens far away from the house in a large cleared field with no trees and it's a monocrop and we must have inputs for that. And so for me, what I'm trying to do is just show that no, even at the house, <laughs> even in containers, even up the walls, even over the top, over the canopies, between structures, between shelters, food can be grown. And we are starting to demonstrate that. I personally, I know, um, I mean, just really quickly, I live on a fifth floor apartment here in Nairobi, and I call it the fifth floor farm because I have three balconies. I raise chickens. I have a chicken coop on my balcony. I raise micro livestock, black soldier fly larvae, mealworms, earthworms. I do vermicomposting, do mushroom production, and a lot of food. And part of the reason why I do this is because I want to demonstrate that even on a nano scale, you know, you can meet a lot of food needs. I took this photo of a breakfast plate one time. It was eggs, fresh shiitake mushrooms, and fresh herbs, and it was all for my garden, and that was a fresh farm-fresh breakfast, and I live in an apartment. <laughs> so you know, uh, the reason that I like you know, my teams and colleagues to see that, and I try to highlight that in different ways to them and do brown bags and presentations is so that I can expand their thinking about when we're working with teams you know, with refugees in different <laughs> situations – that food production can really happen on a very, very small scale with very few inputs. And even if it's just growing a few uh, pots of greens, if it's those few leaves can add the nutrition uh, and bring down costs of a family, then we need to cover the spaces with that, you know? Yeah. I just want to also yeah. mention that not all refugees live in camps. We work with women from Burundi who live in Nairobi City. They've been refugees for 20 years. They don't want food or anything. They've got skills. They do tailoring. They do dressmaking. They do jewelry making. All they want is 
financial capital to be able to get raw materials. And there, that you know, the work that we do there is not only humanitarian, it's also working with advocacy, working with the governments of countries to say, can can we promote legal status of refugees so that they can get loans, they can open bank accounts? I mean, they're, they're people just like, you know, many of them are just educated uh, people who have been displaced by no fault of their own, who all they, they're like, no, I don't need vocational training or any skill building. I just need money. You know, I just need a loan. So, so that's the whole other end of the spectrum is that they're integrated into societies over the long term and they don't live in a camp. And so still, though, you can impart knowledge on food production at the home level and, and permaculture with all the different elements of systems thinking, water harvesting, biogas, all those different kinds of things. I think people really underestimate the um, access to climate-relevant information, right? Because if you're, a, if you're a camel herder and you have no idea that this is going to be the worst drought in recorded history, for example, you know, you need to make some decisions. And when you're a camel herder, like in Somalia, you love your camels. I mean, that is your entire identity as a man is tied to those camels. You're not going to just sell them the minute it's like dry, you know, for a few days. You wait and wait and wait and wait because you're hoping you can ride it out. By the time they are almost dead, they've lost so much body condition that you have to sell them at a, such a low price that like it just totally compounds your vulnerability. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, people need to know what is coming down the pike in terms of weather. Yeah. And, you know, and market, and that's hand-in-hand hand with market information. So, you know, they, they need to know, if I go to Dadab, I can sell my camels for this much, but if I go to Mogadishu, I can fetch this much. So I've got, drought is here, I need to make a decision, where can I get the most for my dying camel? You know, so those really go hand-in-hand. Yeah. Now, what about that mid-range where you do have a camp, but it seems like the people are really not going to be able to return to where they came from, and that camp becomes a permanent settlement? What's what's that look like? Yeah, so, you know, uh, my organization and many organizations work within something that reflects three different platforms. In, in our language, what we talk about are the emergencies and rapid response to emergencies. Um, and then we've got durable solutions and then root causes. Durable solutions basically is like, okay, you know, here's a group that's been displaced. The first option, the preferred option is that everybody goes home to a peaceful, stable <laughs> um, context, right, that is productive and they can have access to economic dignified economic opportunities they have a stable govern, governance structure um, so obviously that's the preferred the second preferred option is to fit those people into a longer term situation if the first one isn't uh, isn't viable so that they can now be integrated into a place that is welcoming to them right so if, and that might be in a nearby country, in a nearby town, but that basically says, we open our arms to you, please come, feel free, establish your home here. Um, and then lastly, if people are really stuck and can't go anywhere, how do we now deal with the reality that people are kind of trapped in a place among, in, in somebody else's home, in a community that is somebody else's community that may or may not be happy that they're there. And so... 
to answer your question, you have camp situations or you have displacement situations that can be temporary that, you know, may last weeks, um, months, you know, a couple of years. And then you've got longer term uh, refugee situations where people might be there for many years. And then you've got what we call protracted refugeeism or protracted uh, displacement, which means generations. People, you know, people grew up in camps. They've never even been to this place called home. And so they're already, you know, looking to the future. They don't really have an emotional tie to this place called home. They're trying to find opportunities and grow up. And you've got youth. They, you know, they want to go to high school and college. And they grew up in Kenya. They, they consider themselves Kenyan or Ugandan or Ethiopian. And they're not as tied. And so that's a whole other situation. So, um, so it, you know, again, it's a spectrum, short, medium, and long term. And so, as I was saying, we have three platforms, the humanitarian response, working in that durable solutions. Now, you know, what's the next step for these communities? And then the third one is root causes of displacement. So why are people being displaced in the first place? Is it conflict? Uh, is it drought? And is that conflict over um, resources, right? Like in, in East Africa, we have a huge number of pastoralists and pastoralists need viable rangeland that is thriving with grasses and they need access to water, potable water for their animals. When that starts to shrivel up and, you know, and evaporate, then they're encroaching now and, and violating traditional peace accords between communities and encroaching on one another. Or even if they historically came into the territory of another group, now they're coming earlier they're coming long, staying longer, they're leaving later, and it's really stressing, you know, the, the social fabric and it causing, you know, everywhere, everywhere from tension to conflict to outright war um, in some places. And so the root causes is looking at, you know, in, in my organization, we work with um, conflict mitigation, demining, uh, the, all the elements of um, armed violence and trying to work with and through communities. And I am trying to bring, you know, the, the tenets of permaculture to that as well, right? So how do we work on ecosystem restoration? Can ecological regeneration be a peace dividend, right? How do we provide opportunities to re-engineer the landscape so that it can meet those needs? How do we recharge groundwater systems? So in that root causes realm, you know, there's a lot of, you know, throughout, you know, the emergency to every phase, you can bring the sort of principles of permaculture and, and interconnectedness into all of those. Hmm. Yeah. So what, what other aspects, I mean, you kind of went into the next thing I was thinking about was, you know, in what ways are you using help permaculture to help the situation? But I guess I'd rephrase the question. Um, what are you bringing that is unique what what unique perspective are you bringing to the situation that you feel like has not been brought before um, based on your professional background, permaculture, um, those types of uh, studies now and, and knowledge that you have? Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm developing our regional resilience strategy right now, and I'm going to be focusing on a few different things. But really, people zooming out and understanding the interconnectedness of a lot of these issues and what really builds resilience, especially for women and girls. Women and girls are by far more, you know, uh, uh, more acutely vulnerable to shocks and stresses of all kinds than men and boys for a lot of different reasons. And so, you know, if I'm in a camp, I mean, I've literally gone like from shelter to shelter with, you know, children all, all around, uh, 
you know, and talking to the residents about what how they can modify what they're doing at home. You reuse their gray water, uh, sweep up the mulch that's all around the house, stop burning it, and using that to build soil for food production. To you know, we're re- we're doing a reconfiguration of a camp design right now in a, in a hot place, and I'm asking like, all right, let's you know, why don't we understand the direction of the prevailing winds so that at least the the orientation of the camp can harvest the ventilation. If we're punching holes for windows, you know, in the individual shelters, do that, you know, position those in a way that harvests that that uh, prevailing ventilation. Um, how do we bring down, you know, temperatures? How do we make it more, uh, more livable, more tenable? So, for example, in that particular camp, there are a lot of suicides. You know, how do we create these pocket situations so that people can interact more and, you know, just feel more connected? Um, in that, in one particular camp, we have a lot of fires because people, women, go out of the camp to get uh, wood for charcoal, and when they do that, they are sexually assaulted. We have huge amounts of rapes and and rapes. I mean, just sexual. We call it SGBV, sexual and gender-based violence. It means violence against women, brutality, and rape. And so, when women leave camps to fetch water, to you know, if water isn't provided. Because there are informal camps and settlements, that's a different thing. But, you know, when, when women have to leave for any reason, even if they want to go farm outside of a camp, they're subjected to really unthinkable brutality. Um, so in this camp, all right, how can we now, knowing that we have 22,000 people in a small place who all day, every day are excreting human nutrient and energy, Yet we spend time, money, energy, and resources to export that human waste to some place called Away. I don't know the GPS coordinates of that place called Away, <laughs> but it's some system of that's a disease vector. And now we import, you know, spend time, money, energy, and resources to import energy and fossil fuels, and that's a disconnect, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that is we are at war with stupidity when we do that. <laughs> you know? Um, the other thing is rainwater. We have engineers who come in and bulldoze everything and create massive drainage systems to quickly usher water away from the site. There are reasons for that because especially like in South Sudan in places where you have very thick black cotton soil, it's, you know, you, you really need to keep the place dry where people, where 22,000 people are crowded together. But why don't we catch it before it falls onto the ground, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, pacify it, pacify it vertically. So I, I worked with our teams and our engineers to say, let's do this. Let's pilot a community kitchen. A community kitchen. We must obviously only do this with and through the community, through consultations. This is something they're interested in. We're not doing this to them. Um, uh, to do community kitchens that um, use water that's captured uh, through rainwater harvesting, and at the end of the different blocks, you have latrines. So people go and they use the latrines, which become a disgusting place because all that waste just sits there until, you know, what we call is a honeysucker. That is a truck that comes and sucks all that out and takes it to that place called the way. So now let's take those latrines, um, tap those for the methane that they produce and use that to feed cooking, which is a cultural thing that we have to see if people will be open to that. But if they're not open to it for cooking, in the camps where we do have a lot of violence against women, if we can uh, use that to power some LED lights and create some diffuse lighting, 
so that we can at least improve the safety and security a little bit within the camp and even flow that energy source into the local market because there's a little market in the camp where people are charging their little Nokia phones <laughs> uh, and, you know, they've got their radios and some TV show, TVs that they watch football um, and they need power. So, uh, yeah, they're right next to latrines. So let's make those connections, um, you know, definitely on food production. Um, you know, how do we get more food produced in and around the camps? It doesn't have, you know, and, and get away from this notion. It's got to be large scale away from the camps. So how do we bring food production into and on top of the shelter? Like I said, up the walls, you know, create canopies. If you created canopies between the shelters of vining foods, then you are bringing down temperatures and, and growing biomass and providing food. We have big black water tanks all over the camps. Paint those white, cover them with vining food, you know, reduce the evaporation. So it's a lot of different, I mean, from, from the physical design to the economic design, how do we create livelihoods? Um, you know, I saw a woman in Tanzania, she was a Burundian refugee, and she was sat and she had a big bin of all these different uh, plastic water bottles that were filled with some liquid. And the guy explained to me that she takes tea, adds sugar, and leaves it for like two or three weeks, and then comes and sells it to people. They really like it. We have a name for that. We call it kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you know, how do we, she's using waste materials of recycled bottles. Mm. She's creating a healthy probiotic option to sodas, which are very popular, even in refugee camps. You know, so it's from the livelihoods and income generating activities. I'm always asking myself two things. One, how do we divorce, you know, how does this initiative divorce us from fossil fuels? And second, how is this a regenerative enterprise? And can there be some industrial symbiosis? Can we take the raw, you know, the waste product, the output of one livelihoods activity or one industrial activity and use that as an input for another? So, um, and then also what makes sense within our bioregional context? Because my, part of my role is dealing with market systems development and doing market facilitation. So how do we link people with market actors. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm looking at like, all right, what, what is this biological region, this bio region, and what is the ecological context and what are kind of the economic activities that make sense within that? An example is livestock. I mean, we've got massive, right now, when the Hajj happens in Saudi Arabia, East Africa exports livestock, which is shoats, sheep, goats, camels, and cows, but imports fodder from Turkey hmm. to send on the, not, not all, you know, but there, there's fodder, you know, silage that is produced and imported from Turkey to send on ships to Saudi Arabia with our East African livestock. I mean, we can, we can solve this. <laughs> and I really do believe there are more solutions than problems to all of this for sure. Yeah. So it's really interesting because, um, the, the picture you're painting, of um of the camps where you really are not necessarily trying to create a permanent settlement but you're using systems that are really temporary um but do you ever carry with you the perspective of oh and when this camp is gone what are we going to leave like i'm thinking about incorporation of fast growing perennials even um things that can be coppiced for fire, produce shade, be coppiced for firewood, even within the camp, that when the camp was gone, would then, you know, become uh, a, a vibrant ecosystem. 
Um, so do you ever think about the succession of incorporating perennials and what the camp looks like beyond its functionality as a camp? Yeah, for sure. So we do have longer term camps. Um, for example, in Northern Kenya where people have been for generations. Okay. And also what I really want to make clear is that we don't only work with displaced populations. When a displaced community arrives to another community, you have a lot of potential for conflict. <laughs> and that host community is often also vulnerable, very vulnerable and, and doesn't have adequate services. And so suddenly you spring up a camp and they, you know, the UN is bringing schools and clinics and all these services. And the host community is like, you know, what about me? <laughs> um, and so we do do a lot of work also with the host community um, on trying to build resilience. I'll give you an example of that. I'm working um, in three weeks. I start a, a demo site. I've gotten some funding from my organization, which is fabulous. They've given me money to do a, a dry land sort of regreening and agroecology demo site in one village. So I'm, I've got until now, you know, now until November and a lot of support. Um, Warren Brush is going to come help me for 15 days. And I've got, we've got 50 villagers there from the Turkana tribe that are engaged with us and 20 people from my organization. And I'm bringing in people from Yemen, Ethiopia, Somalia, Uganda, that are our staff that will work together. We'll have 70 people with the villagers to do earthworks and stoneworks. Wow. And hopefully we're going to get an excavator. I really want to recharge their borehole. Um, I don't want to make promises. So <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say that on a podcast. Um, <laughs> Uh, that would really be, if we can demonstrate that, that's going to be amazing. So we do work with that host community, but to answer your question, yes, that is a protracted, you know, displacement situation where people have been living for, you know, the war in South Sudan has been going on for 60 years. Hmm. So you have several generations that there that, <clears throat> that yes, trees, uh, long-term economic activities, um, really it's, you know, it's established that they're going to be there for probably forever. So definitely we're working with them. We are working on, uh, we've got farms that we're doing with them and bringing permaculture principles. So there, for example, it's an extremely arid place. The wind is so hot. I mean, if good luck if you're a drop of water. <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to survive there. Um, I always, when I train farmers, I tell them we have three thieves of water. Um, the sun, the wind, and the slope, or the gravity. And so we're trying to always mitigate for that. So we've done all these, uh, we're doing these farms and bringing in a lot of polyculture, integrated pest management, soil building. Um, and it's an unbelievable how within the last five months, we're already seeing a difference. In fact, we've got some sections of our farm that because of the mulch, because of the cover crops, the soil is so moist that they don't even water it anymore. It just wow. is holding its own water. It's unbelievable. Jeez. Then in places like, you know, Uganda has been so you know, a very, very, had, has had a very favorable policy towards displaced populations coming in from South Sudan. They give them a plot of land, uh, a, a sizable plot of land, so they can farm and have support. Their legal status is established. They can, you know, they can thrive as economic citizens of the place. But the problem is, is that so many of these places, you don't have a camp in Central Park, you know, uh, <laughs> in New York City. These are in often very remote locations, very rural. People have lost their assets. You have people who are pastoralists who don't know how to be farmers, but they can't have livestock where they are. So there's so much transition that people are going through. 
and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to survive and do economically viable activities, feed themselves. Um, but yeah, in, in, especially in Uganda and in some of the camps where we're working, you don't, we call them more settlements. They're not camps. They're open, uh, you know, large plots that people have to really establish their livelihoods there, grow food. So everything you're talking about, the perennials, the trees, the long-term vision definitely um, it has space in, in some of the context. What I would caution the permies of the world, <laughs> the permie tadpoles that kind of swim out of their PDCs so excited to come and work with refugees, is you need to know what you're doing. You need to know who you're working with. Don't come and start planting trees thinking you're doing a great thing when that can get someone killed because a tree can be a threatening thing when you don't want people in your community and they start coming and looking like they're going to hang out for a while. Mm. So you know, if you know, you have to understand the delicate political idiosyncrasies, the dynamics, uh, the relationships between men and women, um, you know, those, those gendered norms, uh, in a culture, um, you know, inter inter clan dynamics. Uh, even within a camp, you might have Democrats and Republicans in the same refugee camp. <laughs> you know, so um, <laughs> so I just I would really tell people understand the organizations that you're working with. Understand the organizations that you're criticizing, because chances are you don't really know what you're talking about. You've just heard a few permaculture leaders, you know, poo poo different organizations. And respect that people have been working for a very long time to try to find solutions to the world's problems. And we're, everyone's doing our best. Not everyone knows about permaculture. People are learning about it. It's not the answer to everything. There are a lot of very complex things that, uh, that cause conflict that people really need to also recognize and appreciate that they don't, they're not going to come and solve that with mulch. Um, so the, I, I, I get, I get nervous about the naivete and ignorance, um, that, that is balled up with all that excitement and world saving goodness. Yeah. Now, I mean, I assume that if people are coming to work, uh, in a refugee situation, they're coming through some sort of organization that has some oversight and that there's, I mean, maybe that's naivete to think that there's not a lot of room for someone to come in and kind of run their own show that is potentially, um, hazardous. Yeah, uh, that's not a necessarily a correct assumption. Okay. People show up. I mean, I just was talking to some guy online the other day, and he was like, oh, I just hitchhiked you know, to Afghanistan and, and Syria, and I'm trying to make, make a career as a photojournalist. And I was like, how are you not dead? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, no, you have people who just figure, let's go and figure it out along the way. Hmm. Um, they're not always with organizations or they hook up with organizations that aren't, that don't really understand the full picture. And some people, yes, do get connected with, um, organizations that are, you know, uh, appropriate or legitimate. Um, you know, so it's, it, it really is another spectrum. I mean, you, you can find all of the above. I see people coming from PDCs and they're like, Oh, I'm just going to come and work with farmers and tell them how to you know, do better farming, but really have no concept of all the factors that impact farmers from corruption to the different market systems, to infrastructure, to, you know, lack of market relevant information, climate relevant information, all the things that help us make decisions and people just please do your homework before you 
you know, <laughs> before you want to jump in um, and and do good work, but do it in a in the right way. Yeah. Now, um, aside from some of the examples you've mentioned, I'm wondering if you have you have other other examples that you consider are your greatest successes thus far in your work. Um, hmm, that's tough because I worked on a lot of different things from different angles. Um, but I do think that the model of, it wasn't working directly with refugees, but it was working with communities and villages that were extremely vulnerable to shocks and stresses, especially drought induced famine. Um, you know, understand that it is a system, just like everything else in permaculture, we talk about systems, but in this context, you know, the issues of governance, the issues of gender, the issues of um, institutional capacity, you know, a lot of the governments for different reasons, could be corruption, could be lack of resources, lack of a tax base, don't have resources to meet the needs and services. And so um, having a systems-based approach that is looking at economic systems, social systems, as well as the natural systems, um, really kind of zooming out. Understand when, you know, try to understand when a shock happens in a place, what are the ripple effects? How, what is the capacity of different institutions to handle that? What is the capacity of the local infrastructure to handle that? Let me give you just a really quick example. In the program I was running in Uganda, we spent six months doing an assessment on trying to really understand what are the vulnerabilities of this region, the Karamoja region, which is the poorest and um, you know, the, the largest and poorest region of Uganda. It also happens, to, 90% of it is also covered in 100 different types of minerals. So it's super juicy for some people. So there's a lot of eyes on that, trying to figure out how do we get all these pastoralists to stop running around all over the place and settled <laughs> and do agriculture. You know, what we were finding is that, you know, what is the link between climate change and domestic violence? In one town called Moroto, if a truck, a lorry truck, is coming from Bali town with foodstuffs, grains, you know, oil, sugar, all these things, and suddenly, because there's been so much ecological degradation and deforestation, the infrastructure is weakened. Now a flash flood comes and that same road is washed out. Now that truck, that lorry truck, cannot go directly from Bali to Moroto. Now they have to go all the way around about to Cotido. By the time they reach the same location, the price has gone up so much because of the extra fuel and everything. Now a woman goes to the market. She can't afford, either she has to buy less food or a, a decreased variety, right? And the nutrition of the family goes down. She's not able to meet uh, the food needs of that family. And in her culture, that's her role. And so she's beaten. Brutalized. Hmm. You know, and then, of course, there's a pecking order in the household. Who eats first? It's always the man who eats first and then the older son. And then you've got the little ones, especially little girls that get the crumbs. The little girls are the first ones to be sent, uh, taken out of school uh, to help mom fetch firewood and water. And they, the likelihood of them going back to school is low. So it's much easier for them to marry her off to a, a situation where she's going to be uh, exposed to forced and early marriage, forced and early pregnancy. So the reason I say that is because there are so many things that there are so many angles that we could provide support to institutions, to infrastructure, to 
families to communities in food production. And so understanding really that billiard effect, you know, when a shock happens, where do all those balls land? Mm. And it's much more than just doing permaculture gardens and all that stuff. So respect that you're walking into a place that has a long history with a lot of actors and most of the things are happening for reasons that will always remain invisible to you. Mm. <laughs> and so walk, you know, just be cautious. Don't come in like you know everything and you've got the answers. Um, you know, keep your eyes, eyes open and your mouth shut <laughs> <laughs> until you figure out where the appropriate place is for you to try to um, provide support. Yeah. Well, um, let's let's circle back around to the first thing that we were talking about, and I I mentioned USAID just offhand, as you know, not knowing a whole lot about you know what what exactly that entails and the difference between you know a government development organization and a, a more like a, a refugee aid organization. So, if you would. Um, maybe tell us some of the organizations that you feel like really shine and what the quality is of an organization that someone would want to support in some way um, that, that you feel like is really is really hitting the nail on the head as far as what the perspective is that needs to um, come to help solve some of these crises. Um, so... You know, I don't think there's any organization that has it perfectly. I think that the whole um, development universe is also an ecosystem, and, and there's consciousness that's being built all the time. So all the time, leaders in among donors, among different NGOs, even in the private sector, are becoming more enlightened about all these issues. So, I mean, I, I think my organization... Um, which is the Danish Refugee Council, I have found to be extremely open to new ideas. Um, we have very strong leadership. Um, and, you know, I think it's a en very enabling environment to try some new innovation. Um, and when I was working uh, in my previous program that was funded by the British government, I was so surprised with how open they were. And they're already you know, I mean, Europe and the UK, you know, when you're talking about GMOs and pesticides, they're already worlds apart. Um, and so they were very amenable to me trying to not do that type of approach. Um, and I was, I thought that they just generally had a very positive outlook. So programs that are funded by um, DFID, I think, tend, you know, there's a lot of innovation. I think USAID as a donor is coming around. Um, you know, they've been working uh with Mercy Corps, um, especially on doing this resilience design toolkit for smallholder farmers. And I think that they are really starting to understand, wow, we've been promoting pesticides. And like now, I mean, I've been as a consultant in Myanmar on a USAID funded project. And like, you have to sign things that says you will not bring pesticides or, or you, you know, it, what are you using for chemicals? And it has to be approved. And so there's a lot more caution, which I'm very happy about. Um, and then uh, I think also I have a colleague at the Norwegian Refugee Council who, um, you know, who's also a permaculturalist. And, you know, I have great conversations with her and looking at how can we, you know, try to promote more of these principles. Um, I would look more at you know, it's not, you know, sometimes the same organization can have different programs that have different speeds at which they are adopting um, different, you know, kind of programming. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
the, like I said, resilience is a buzzword, but increasingly donors and organizations are looking at more systems-based approaches. And, and what I said to my organization is, we can't talk about conflict and climate change as the two things that displace people the most. Forget climate change. Ecological degradation. If it rains, you know, we can't control whether or not it rains. But if it rains and there's no sponge in the landscape to hold that, that we can undo, right? <laughs> so it's, it, trying to, you know, change that institutional narrative about, wait a minute, why, what causes drought again? <laughs> and, um, you know, for example, we punch boreholes, right? We come in, we drill boreholes, and I've told this to massive organizations, you know, we're contributing to the drought cycle when we do that. We're destabilizing the local hydrological cycle. And I think that more organizations are starting to have an awareness, um, you know, uh, oh, practical action, I think is a really good one that is, does a lot of innovation that is, you know, that speaks to permaculture types of um, solutions, everything from renewable energy to conservation agriculture. Um, I think CARE International, uh, just the way it sounds, CARE, C-A-R-E, they do a lot with um, agroecology, or they're trying to, especially in West Africa. Um, um, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. You know, and private sector. There are a lot of private sector actors. I know that you know sometimes people shy away from market actors and businesses, but um, you do have a lot of even just small social enterprises that are trying to find solutions in industri industrial symbiosis in some types of innovation around you know, new kinds of, uh, renewable energy, yeah. um, you know, whatever that might be bioconversion. Um, so look at also at private sector actors that are dealing with solar energy, biogas, food production, different value chains and supply chains, not just, you know, the, the nonprofit world. Now, what types of organizations are really getting it wrong and why? You know, oh, you don't have to don't mention know. names or anything. I'm just like, what's the what's the big what's the biggest error or flaw that you see that organizations are practicing? Yeah, I mean, it's it is hard to name a um, a specific agency because it's a journey. We're all on a journey. I mean, I've been living here in East Africa for 13 years, almost 14 years, and I see so much change in the whole community of people who are working in development in recovery work. Um, you know, just the more we keep having conversations, the more people are like, wow, okay, we can, maybe there's a better approach to this. It is challenging when you're doing humanitarian response because it's literally like, in some cases, you just need to give food to people, right? Off of the back of a truck or in a, you know, we have teams, uh, not us, but another organization that like a team of people comes, gets dropped off by a helicopter. It's not accessible by road, by nothing. And they just wait for food to fall from the sky, and then they register people who are receiving it. So, you know, yes, permaculture is great, but there are moments that people just need to eat right this second. And um, that also goes to cash programming. I was, you know, when I started with my agency, we do a lot of cash programming, and I wasn't really sure how I felt about that. But when you talk about, you know, some of these food distributions, you know, and global food aid is U.S., food or, you know, food from another part of the world grown with fossil fuels, transported by fossil fuels. It's the wrong food that people don't eat anyway, <laughs> in some cases, not all. Um, and then you see that that food gets sold in the market. Why? Because people need money, right? They have to repay debt. They have to pay medical uh, expenses. 
they have emergencies. They don't only need food and organic, you know, asparagus and what and kale, you know. <laughs> I mean, people need cash. Uh, if you lost everything and you're in a California flash flood, thank God you have a savings account if you have one, because between that and your cousin or neighbor, like that's the only thing that's getting you through until the next step. And if you don't have cash, then you live in a tent in San Francisco, you know. So people don't, you know, so there are organizations that um, do a lot of cash programming, including in the private sector, and try to link that, by the way, to sustainable livelihoods. That's what I want my teams to think about. How do we take a cash resource and a family that's receiving that and help them to think about a type of livelihood activity that can have a multiplier effect within the community, that can be a regenerative enterprise? Um, so, yeah, I mean... I think, you know, organizations that fail to see the interconnectedness of systems and are only trying to attack a problem from one angle without understanding the complexities around it are the ones that are, I think, falling to the wayside. Yeah. Wow. So, um, Natalie, first off, I want to say that you're, you're pretty much my new hero, and um, I really am incredibly um, impressed with your just vast breadth of knowledge and and passion and um and real drive and it seems like you have a real vision about um how this could uh all kind of turn around and go in a good way and i'm, I'm imagining that other people uh that are listening to this are having uh similar feelings and so i'm wondering like what advice would you give to someone who wants to get into the kind of work that you're doing like what, 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 what path should they take? Oh, um, okay. Be willing to be willing to live and work in some incredibly austere conditions, like with no internet, no Facebook, you know, no running water. I lived in a tent for two years with no running water. Um, don't whine. Like I said, keep your eyes open and your mouth shut. Uh, un- listen to people. Um, but I guess in terms of like a first step, if you're trying to come to the U.S., first of all, there are displaced people wherever you are. I mean, I'm sure if you look in your community, you have people who are vulnerable that need that could use support and thinking about how in their own lives, in their own households, in their own communities, they can improve. We have native populations. I want to say that in the U.S. that have been that are internally displaced people. Okay. We have Native Americans, we have, or, you know, indigenous populations or whatever. I, I've been living out of the U.S. for 13 years, so I don't know all the <laughs> correct things. But, um, you know, first look within, um, look at, you know, shelters that are dealing with women and look at some of the displaced populations. We have plenty of refugees. I mean, for now, I don't know how long they'll right, be there. Yeah. Um, yeah in the U S um, and get experience, uh, and look at, you know, be focused on systems thinking, um, and be focused on bioregional dynamics because, you know, it's not only in the realm of agriculture and gardening and food production, right? It's about our bioregional economies, looking at our fiber shed. There's so many opportunities to work with people in the mixed migration, you know, reality of today, um, who, who are trying to figure out how do they make connections in their own lives and try to make a living in the space where they are. And so seek out those people where you are. Um, 
But if you're looking for jobs, you know, um, I think uh, Relief Web is a, is a website that has a lot of different kinds of NGOs. Um, uh, uh, what's another one? It's called, oh, shoot. Interaction, sorry. Interaction um, is a forum for a lot of different NGOs. Um, yeah, so, you know, there's, I mean, look online, try to connect, look, use LinkedIn a lot. Uh, and, you know, get in some of those keywords. I think a lot more on LinkedIn, you're seeing in from, you know, kind of keywords on permaculture, agroecology, resilience design, ecosystem restoration. I see it all the time. Agroforestry. So look at, and by the way, that's another point I want to make. Don't only look at NGOs so that you can go and dig with farmers, which I mean, who doesn't love that? That's my favorite part of <laughs> what I am able to do. But also research institutions, you know, the eCrafts, World Agroforestry. Um, there are so many groups that are trying to build an evidence base, which we are missing so much in permaculture. And I know you're a professor, so maybe, you know, you, you hear what I'm saying. Yeah. We, don't have, yeah. we don't have enough of an evidence base to say this works here, the statistics um, in different approaches. And, you know, everything, I don't, I don't know about Conservation International, but there are so many of those in, in increasing numbers of institutes uh, that are global, that whether it's in the marine context or dry lands, uh, that are really gaining a lot of space. So don't only think about NGOs and necessarily working directly with people. There may be permaculturists who are introverts and they would really like to be doing research and studies and kind of the statistical stuff. So there's an academic level also that we really need and that also provides international opportunities. So where do you see your work going here in the future? I mean, you know, uh, you it, sound, it seems to me like you've, I mean, you've been at this for quite a while and you've gained some level of m- momentum, connections, uh, and you've certainly expressed a lot of vision. Um, is there somewhere that you see this going and your role in it that we have not yet arrived at? Um, well, uh, yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) Do I know what I want to be when I grow up? Um, (laughs) you know, I, um, I feel like I'm really on the right path and I don't, and I, I trust the universe (laughs) and I just need to keep going with what feels right. Um, as Warren Brush always says, you know, give your energy to life affirming things. And that was, you know, when I, by the way, when I applied for this job, one thing I told the interview panel is um, that I will not be involved in anything that I deem unethical. And that includes giving poor farmers chemical poison pesticides as an agricultural input and giving them fake seeds that don't regenerate. And that is where I draw the line. And I do think that it's important when you are going into organizations to hold your ground, to be bold, um, and to be really clear on what you will and will not do. And so that being said, I just feel like I've kind of found the space in my life where, you know, I don't, I, the, I, I, the way forward for me is just to continue to, un, to be clear about my ethics and to always find things that are life affirming endeavors for me. Um, but from a technical standpoint, I mean, I really would like to get in more into ecosystem restoration, watershed stuff. Um, I want to see more women on backhoes and excavators. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I would like to kind of push the boundaries of gender and permaculture, which I don't, you know, is is sort of an uncomfortable 
thing for some people to recognize that even in this permaculture environment, we still have uh, a lot of gender things that we haven't figured out. Um, and so I want to be doing larger projects that are more bold, that are not just about gardening and food production, but really looking at larger scale restoration. So I'm actually today, I might actually buy my first laser level for <laughs> it's a big, big investment for me. Um, but I do want to, uh, I want to be directing more larger projects on that, that work towards groundwater and, uh, regeneration and, uh, you know, alleviating drought, particularly in this region. Do, am I going to leave East Africa? Who knows? I've been here for a long time. It's where my social capital is. I don't know if I want to settle here, but um, I'm, I am going to start building a cob house um, the weekend after next. Um, and this weekend, actually, I'm working with the Waldorf School. I'm leading the faculty and the, the, the parents in a permaculture design for their school. Right. And so, you know, there's sort of the long term and the short term. I've got all these little satellite uh, projects that I just help friends with and and different community projects and women's shelters and stuff like that. So I'm just going to take it one day at a time. <laughs> Great. Now, how Great. can our <laughs> listeners find out more about your work or well, get in we, touch with you or however it yeah. is? Yeah. So, uh, well, I've got my, my personal email is natalie topa at gmail.com. Um, I, relatively new to my organization. So I just started late last year in August. And so in terms of projects on the ground, there's not, you know, there's only little results that we can show to date, but by the end of this year, that'll change. But in the meantime, I do run five different Facebook groups that are all related to permaculture. They all start with Nat and friends. One is called Nat and friends colon permaculture and resilience design and that is where I really focus on agroecology and ecosystem stuff. Um, one called Nat and Friends, Building Our uh, Natural Dream Homes and Communities. That's everything about regenerative communities, renewable energy, infrastructure, as well as natural building, cob, bamboo. And then I have one called Nat and Friends, Fungi and Mycology, because, I mean, who doesn't love mushrooms? Um, <laughs> no, we really need to understand that it is the neurological network of our planet. Um, Avatar had it right. <laughs> so that one, uh, that one I may also, I'm going to be focusing more on phycology and permaphycology. Um, I want to start growing spirulina here in my apartment, but that's just such a viable nutrition and livelihoods um, endeavor for people in my context uh, that can be done on a very small scale. So the, another one is called Nat and Friends Seed Saving and Sovereignty, and that's all about what it sounds like. I'm, you know, very against the notion of patenting of seeds and uh, and the, just the fact that 94% of our crop varieties globally have gone extinct. And then the last one is Nat and Friends, colon, the, per, the Permi Kitchen and Home. So that's just everything from cooking. I didn't talk about cooking, but I... I'm a, I'm quite chefy. I actually, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to the back to the Culinary Institute of America to do a, a French culinary boot camp, and that's a whole other aspect of my life is um, is creating delicious, wonderful foods using fresh local ingredients. Uh, but the Permi Kitchen and Home is everything from like DIY stuff to uh, food sprouting, fermenting, that kind of stuff. So everyone can. Most of those are public. I think the seed one. Here in Kenya is not public. <laughs> nice, awesome. Well, 
Wow, this has been really um, interesting. I feel like I learned a lot. I'm sure everybody listening is going to learn a ton as well. And um, hopefully it sets people off on uh, you know, a path of really learning a lot more about the situation and, and making sure that if they are involved in uh, displaced persons work, refugee work, that they are um, on a good road with it. So thank you so much for kind of, you know, creating a lot of boundaries and setting really uh, setting a lot of things straight. I appreciate that very much. And I really appreciate your time out of your very, sounds like extraordinarily busy and active schedule there. So thanks so much for talking to me. Of course. It's a pleasure. All right. And good luck. Thank you so much. All right. Great. Have a great day, Natalie. Have a great evening, Natalie. <laughs> yeah. Good night. Good night. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.